Welcome to Lunch with Tech Leaders, where we have engaging conversations about software development and cloud engineering with industry leaders and subject matter experts. These episodes are created by the Great Lakes Tech Leaders, an online community of technology practitioners. Please come join the conversation by visiting gltl.rbn.ai. Again, that's gltl.rbn.ai. Now strap in, because we're deploying to production in three, two, one. Alrighty, welcome to the latest episode of Lunch with Tech Leaders. My name is Jason Brown. I'm a cloud solutions architect with Right Brain Networks, and I'm your host for today. Joining me is software and data consultant Tom Kowalski. Hello. And today we have subject matter expert and recurring guest on the podcast, Preston Frazier, who's a senior software engineer from the Interoperability Institute. Welcome back, Preston. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Excellent. So in this episode, we're going to discuss cost optimization strategies, in particular in the serverless context, though with serverless architecture. We've touched on this topic a little bit on uh, a lot of our previous discussions, um, but I'm hoping we can dig in today and uh, really get some some interesting conversation going. So I guess I'll kick things off uh, with you, Tom. Um, so, you know, as consultants, when we're explaining the cost model for serverless architecture, I mean, I see a lot of people fall back on saying you pay for what you use, but you could say the same thing about cloud uh, cost model in general. So... Like, how does that differ from the cost accrued from, uh, like, spinning up a, a database or a compute instance? Like, if we have actually serverless architecture, how does the mo the cost model compare? Yeah, I think, you know, the idea moving to the cloud, right, is you're eliminating the undifferentiated heavy lifting, as AWS likes to say. So, you, you know, you're focusing on the, the total cost of ownership. Whereas, you know, before you had to worry, you know, half of, you know, a portion of your resources of your company are going towards maintaining servers. And that may not be your bread and butter. Maybe it is, but you, you know, most businesses, they're, they're focused on something else. They have a different customer value that they're trying to solve for. And it's, you know, better if they can just focus on that. So when thinking of serverless, you, you know, it's just that next uh, evolution in that, right? It's that another abstraction layer where it's less that you have to think about. So, yeah, that's kind of how I approach it, right? It's that, uh, yeah, it may it may seem ex more expensive, right? It, it, it is more expensive to run, you know, in a co-location and then, you know, cloud and, you know, now serverless. But if you think about it in that total cost of ownership uh, context, it... Uh, it, it allows people to see it better, right? Because, yeah, when they, uh, you know, just think of like a server running and they compare it, you know, apples to apples, well, if it, you know, runs exactly the same amount, you know, it might be a little bit more. So, yeah, thinking about that abstraction and the the total cost of ownership, that's how I like to uh, approach it when I'm talking about serverless cost. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just to kind of compare a little bit between the, the different levels of, or different layers of abstraction, you could discuss spinning up an EC2 instance and how that would accrue cost versus running a, a Lambda in AWS, right? So you could have a, um, you know, a, a gigantic, you know, 4x large EC2 instance that's uh, that you spin up that's basically running the meter and 
if that isn't appropriate for your workload, you know, that's still going to be accruing cost as long as that server's running, right? Or, yeah, and a, a, as opposed to a Lambda, uh, the Lambda is only going to be accruing cost when it spins up uh, or the length of time that it spins up. So that said, there is sort of an element of right sizing when it comes to things like Lambda functions and, uh, you know, you can, you can talk about some of the controls there like concurrency and, uh, you know, how much horsepower you put behind it, but which uh, we can get to that a little bit later. But speaking more generally, uh, I'd like to get into some of the, the examples of, of common components that uh, contribute to the costs for serverless architecture. So we talked a little bit about compute, but there's some other things as well. But yeah, and I wanted to get some input from you t too, Preston, on this. So what cost components like compute that uh, you typically see in, in serverless architecture? Yeah, um, you know, I've already touched on, on Lambda as a huge um, serverless uh, service, but other things like uh, Dynamo DB, a serverless database, you're only charged for when you're running requests against that. Um, I think there is a storage size charge, but I, I think it's pretty low. Services like SQS, where you're charging for API requests to a serverless queue or SNS, where you're, you're making message requests or, um, you know, AWS has something like step functions that help you orchestrate workflows that those are serverless services that you're only paying for when you use it. So those are, you know, some things that are available as a, uh, and to, you know, throw on another one, which is popular is like ECS or Kubernetes where you're, you're starting up containers and then shutting them down when you're finished with your work. Right. Yeah. Those are all really good ones too. Things like data transfer costs as well. I mean, when you design a network, you know, there's data flowing uh, in and out of that network, um, usually for things like AWS and Azure, I think like the data that is transferred within the network doesn't get uh, added to cost, but data going in and out typically does. Um, but these are things to be aware of that uh, do accrue cost within serverless architecture as well. So uh, of these cost components that we just talked about, things that contribute to the overall cost, um, which ones would you consider to be more difficult for organizations to reduce cost for and uh, which of these are, are typically easier? I mean, I know it's going to vary a lot from, from organization to organization, but do you see like a common thread of things that are more easily to save on cost versus others? I can start off and, and, and say that I think the easiest one is, you know, it all depends on your architecture. I'll be upfront and say that because there's so many different architectures you can have. And sometimes, you know, a traditional architecture might be better than a serverless architecture depending on your workflow, but, you know, compute workloads are usually the easiest ones to convert from a traditional server to uh, a serverless technology, you know, convert something that was running on a EC2 instance, a server, and turn that into a Lambda. So maybe you have an API, a web application or something that you make API requests to. Um, and so instead of having a server that's running 24-7, you have an API gateway and a Lambda function behind that. And so you're you're only paying for those API requests when people are using your website. So it's, you know, on-demand availability. Um, that's kind of an example of maybe a, a simple transition from traditional architecture to serverless is using, changing out the compute layer. Yeah, absolutely. Those are, that's a really good example. 
Um, do you have any do you have any thoughts on that as well, Tom? In terms of like which components yeah. might be difficult to reduce the cost for versus others? Well, so I like to just thinking about it at a little higher level is, is usually where the cost comes into play. At least that what I've dealt with. It's the the people. And, you know, the cost of building the solutions, the cost of maintaining them. Like Preston said, the architecture, right? Which, you know, I'm a huge fan of Conway's law, right? How it applies to all architecture. So it, it really depends on, you know, the, the organization and how they're they're set up to to build these and handle them. That's where the big cost comes in that I've always seen uh, when, when working with various teams and organizations. So those components, when I, when I talk about it, it's how, how long, you know, how long is it going to take this team to get up to speed on learning this new technology? You know, how often is it going to change? You know, is, you know, who's going to be maintaining it? Are they familiar? Uh, how often is it going to be updated? Or is this like a, a set it and forget it thing? There's a lot of, a lot of factors in there, right? In that, that architecture that almost make the optimization of the the smaller components I'll say like not worth it but not as important right you could be paying twice as much for serverless you know capacity and maybe it's not architected properly but it might not be worth it to pay an engineer to re-architect it to be better so um i know you wanted to get into more of like the the smaller components technical side but yeah whenever when i've dev dealt with it it's the that cost it's uh it's like a step higher right uh it's usually the bigger cost people like to see the uh the oh you know i saved this much by switching this workload over here or, or whatever but uh that that's just what i've seen is more the 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 people side of it yeah that's a really good uh observation because you know software doesn't build itself yet yeah yeah <laughs> right yeah and a lot of those are um you know, what people would consider like hidden costs, but having a good standard for how your architecture is designed, built, and then pushed out uh, into the cloud is very important, as you pointed out. I mean, if you don't really have any any standards and, and or controls, um, and people are, you know, building things using infrastructure as code, but then also just kind of like creating one-off lambdas or spinning up random instances outside of that, I mean, that can also accrue cost and sometimes you won't even know until much much later <laughs> when yeah. you do a review an architecture review and find all of these things that are like well what is this being used for oh well that thing is a jump box that we haven't spun up or used in, in you know a long time or yeah so definitely a, a really good point there you go off of that it's 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 interesting because when you say like the one-off lambda functions it's very easy to do that and that that can be a problem uh and it does take you know some discipline to to treat serverless solutions or workloads like any other in terms of the port around them you know making sure they have unit tests the pipeline right good documentation all of that it can be easy to to spin something up and get it going and then yeah it bites you down the line if you don't uh if you don't treat it like a real production service which you know it could be and off of that, I don't want to jump ahead if you're going to talk about this later, but, um, you know, those serverless architectures, you, you know, you know, they're not always running or, you know, they only run when you send a request or you need work done. So 
a lot of times when you're building them, you're not getting the full picture of the cost um, because you're not, you know, running a production load against your system. So doing load testing in, you know, your development environment is even more important with serverless. So you you really are getting the picture of like how much that's going to cost or how much your service is going to be utilized because, you know, it's not going to be running a lot of times when it's deployed. It's just sitting there waiting and load testing can really help you find, you know, cost problems and inefficiencies with your architecture. It, that's huge. Right. Yeah. And that is something I've seen before where. You know, people will switch to serverless and they'll go in their dev and test environments and be like, wow, there's so much cost that we saved on this when they're really not hardly running any kind of heavy load on it. And then when things get to pre-product production, like, whoa, what happened? Right. <laughs> well, it's because now we're running production loads. This is the more more of what you would expect, right, to see in terms of cost. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot that we discussed here that you, could be easily overlooked, right? Yeah. And yeah. before I forget, I just want to bring up as you're mentioning, you know, dev and test environments, right? And saving. That's, I know mean, we've talked about this before, but that's also really the big cost, right? When when talking about the components of things that you couldn't do before, um, especially moving to the cloud, right? It's easier to do DR. Uh, so now you can do it. Maybe you didn't have it before, but no, now it's an extra cost. It's kind of the same with dev and test environments where now a serverless you can have those short-lived ephemeral you know spin up an entire production environment you know exact copy of production environment minus the data and you know run your workloads test it just like it would be in production where as you might not have been able to do that may have been very cost prohibitive time prohibitive um you know to spin up SQL Server cluster, you might not be able to do that. Whereas with Dynamo and you know Lambda, you can. So it's uh it adds like another element to it, and that's just kind of another thing that I've noticed is well, you know, people like to just look at that production cost. This is how much it's running. Uh, whereas a huge benefit of serverless is being able to have production like copies right for every single branch of your code, and it may actually cost more. Uh, than it did before, but now you can't from a just you know running those components standpoint. But now you can have so much better quality control when developing. So yeah, yeah, I can attest to that. My organization, um, we we have dev and test environment. It's completely um, you know isolated in its own AWS account. So we definitely know how much we're spending on our our, our dev costs. And so like he said, with that, you know, we can spin up, shut down our CloudFormation stacks or however your applications are organized on demand. And, you know, along with that, even if you don't want to shut, maybe undeploy all of your resources or remove all of your resources, you can turn off some of your, you know, resources, maybe disable them in like off hours when no one's using them for development. Maybe you don't. I mean, in my place, we have a lot of applications deployed and a lot, um, quite a few servers with that. And we don't want to undeploy all of our applications every day, but we can turn off our servers. And so one uh, trick or one, you know, tip we do is we have a scheduler where we can schedule all of our, you know, databases, EC2 instances, anything that's kind of a constantly running server, we can shut that down. 
on a timer, you know, 6 or 7 p.m. after, you know, we're done with work and then started back up in the morning, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning and we're ready to go for the next day. So we can really save, you know, 12 hours of cost or for our dev account where no one's doing any dev work. Yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, that's, and th this is like the, the good, the flip side of it, right? Where you can actually achieve that parity between your lower environments and your uh, your upper environments like prod and pre-prod uh, without having to make very many special cases for architecture, right? You can just decide, uh, it, it does depend on how you build things out, but you can decide, okay, we're going to be doing a load test during this period of time to simulate a production of a load. Let's see how much this is going to cost. Let's see if we need to right size anything. Um, and yeah, like that, that can, uh, rather than having a, a duplicate environment that's pre-prod that would double the cost, right? You, that you would have the same architecture with potentially dramatically reduced cost by comparison. So yeah, that's some really great points all around about that. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to now kind of talk a little bit more about some of the best practices. We talked a little bit about serverless functions. Uh, and one of the things that I love about serverless functions and, and how um, the cost model works for those is that, you know, it, it, there's a huge incentive for making your code run efficiently. Uh, and the how well you can do that and how well you can you can implement your your code to to run quicker and faster has a direct impact on how much you're spending <laughs> which i mean it's it's great that that there's that that direct uh correlation but uh yeah just in terms of some common pitfalls that organizations face like in terms of like inefficient serverless function usage like uh i want to get your guys's opinion on like what what are some some potential uh, pitfalls that that people should avoid when it comes yeah. to serverless functions sure um you know kind of like you said when you're you're talking about running a lambda function and maybe it, it does one small thing and then it shuts down maybe to expand on that let's say you have an event trigger triggering the lambda function maybe it's a sqs and you're reading one item at a time from that sqs and each each item is one invocation of the lambda and um that invocation costs money but you can change your batch size from you know sqs to where instead of one item from the queue processing for an invocation of the lambda you can process 10 items from the queue in one invocation of the lambda so it's really, you know, unique to each of the services, but understanding the full set of features on the service can help you maximize your cost and efficiency. Um, so you really are getting the best value out of, you know, your Lambda function. So instead of invoking the Lambda, you know, 10 individual times, you have it invoked one time and it, it processes your, your workload. So that's just one example with Lambda and SQS. Yeah, so I think what you're getting at is just one of the pitfalls is just leaving all of the different controls and uh, configuration for these as the defaults, right? Which, I mean, starting out that way is okay, but if you really want to be able to save on cost, really finding out how to adjust those controls to make things work for the lambdas you build or for the, the architecture that you build is, is going to be really important. Right, another thing with lambda is like, um, you know, the amount of memory you give your function. 
you know, you, you don't need to, sometimes you don't need to give it a lot of memory. You can give it the minimum amount of memory and it'll process your workload just fine because that memory usage is a cost factor in how much you'll spend per invocation. So the lower you can keep that, the, the cheaper your function will be. And maybe you can, you know, tune your 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 code or your you know workload so you can use the uh, the smallest amount of memory possible, you know, increasing your your value or you know efficiency, cost efficiency for that lambda. Yeah. Uh, how would you say that businesses could find the right balance between like, uh, well, in resource allocation and right sizing, right? So like the suggestion that you just said, like start really, really small. What what would be like the deciding factor for deciding to turn it up? You know, it'll really uh, come down to your testing and maybe back to that load testing um, to really give it a full production workload to make sure that you're, you know, allocating the, the proper proper amount of memory. You'd really hate to get to production and all of a sudden your function's running out of memory. And, you know, that's something you can tweak really easily in in the AWS console to, you know, to fix that. But again, you might not run into the, those limits in, in your your testing or your development environments uh, without that, that production falling, going through. Right. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about um, turning up the memory or adjusting the memory, I should say, turning up or down as as needed. Another one of the controls that I've seen used uh, very effectively are the concurrency controls um, for things like Lambda uh, Lambda functions. I believe you have some, some experience with that too, Preston. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts about the concurrency controls and the what it allows you to do as a feature uh, for serverless functions. Yeah. So obviously being able to run multiple lambdas concurrently is the way to, to scale out your scale horizontally, your, your, you know, work so you can process, you know, many things in parallel. So back to that scenario of having a queue with the, with many items in it, you need to process that you can have your Lambda processing. I think you can have it up to 1,000 SQS invocations from an SQS at a time. I think that's the current limit. I know the actual Lambda limit's higher, but like I'm talking about SQS event to Lambda. So if you don't want the maximum there, like let's say you don't want to spend that much money to have that much um, many Lambdas processing concurrently, you can move that number back down. So you're, you know, maybe you're processing, you know, 10, 20, 50, however many items at a time, you know, however many items at a time um, you want. So maybe your your concurrent executions are smaller. And from a cost standpoint, that might not be a big difference because you're going to use the processing power eventually, either just right at one time concurrently or over a longer period of time. So cost-wise, that might not necessarily be a benefit of changing the number of concurrent executions, but what could be something useful is gearing towards your architecture. Maybe you have 1,000 lambdas running and the lambda does some, you know, network requests, API requests somewhere, and maybe 1,000 connections at one time is going to be too many. Maybe it's going to be overloading a third-party system or another system. 
And you really only want to have like, you know, say a hundred connections open at a time somewhere. So using that scaling, that throttling might be more useful for architectural needs rather than cost needs. Right. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so we are kind of coming up on time already. So I just wanted to, to get everybody's final thoughts uh, and just to get any points in uh, before we conclude that you wanted to, to bring up. Um, Tom, did you have any final thoughts on cost optimization for serverless architecture? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I got I to take it up a, a layer, right? And my advice is don't over-engineer. Uh, it, it depends, right, on your workload. Yeah, maybe it's, you know, costing hundreds of thousands of dollars and it makes sense to optimize for cost. Uh, but a, a lot of workloads, you know, that you're going to make serverless, especially initially for most companies, it's going to be a small workload, right? It's not going to be doing that much. And I've seen it before where, you know, the engineers will, hey, we can save, you know, you can you drastically save money, right? Like, again, magnitudes of scale, but maybe it's only costing, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month. It might not be worth it to have your engineer work for a week, on optimizing that so which i have seen happen so uh yeah just be careful of that and like we said before separating out your workloads into uh each workload and environment into their own aws account so the teams that own them are working on them can see those costs it's very visible it's it's a very good thing to keep it in control. Again, this is where you know it can lead to the over engineering because now they can see those costs. It becomes a game, right? Gamifies it, right? Get as low as I can. So yeah, just be cognizant of that, and you know when when trying to optimize. All right, excellent. And Preston, final thoughts? Yeah, I mean I'm probably guilty of trying to over engineer something. There's a lot of shiny services out there that are yeah. really cool, and it's like. Oh, wow, I can use this because it's going to give me this visibility into the system. And there's a lot of, lot of you know, uh, services that can be useful and can, you know, add a benefit somewhere. But of course, the, there's always a cost associated with it. And as an engineer, I think it's really important to think about the cost up front. You have to think about the cost up front when you're starting an architecture. Otherwise, you're going to... yeah going to run into a surprise uh down the road and i think that's one thing that sometimes we're guilty of as engineers we we think of the services and architecture before the cost which we got to do those together and you know yeah i'd say my biggest you know important thing just to go back to it is is making sure you're doing that load testing that you're you're really testing your architecture so it's gonna tell you what the cost is going to be before you um put it in production and a month later you have this really big bill and you're really surprised. So test first. Excellent. Well, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to today's episode of Lunch with Tech Leaders. We hope you found the conversation informative and valuable as always. Uh, we'd love to have you join us again for the next episode. I think we're skipping next week since it's going to be Thanksgiving, uh, but the week after we'll be covering chat gpt custom assistants and agents as always the episode will feature expert guests and interactive conversations so be sure to tune in thanks everybody